0: It's good to be with you. Please open your Bibles to the book of Job, or some of you might call it Job. (laughs) If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the elders or ushers will bring you a Bible. We want you to have the Word of God in your hand so you can follow along line by line and verse by verse. I think we need a few of them. One right here, please. Thank you, guys. They'll come up and down your aisle if you just keep your hand up and they'll make sure... You get the word of God. All right. Did everybody get the the uh, job? I'm almost gonna do it. Job outline. Did everybody get the job outline? If you didn't, somebody who's got the job outline, raise your hand or show lift it up for me. That's what it is. If you didn't get one of these, please raise your hand, and they'll bring you one by. It's it's basically. We write it. We put it together. It's so you can study the Word of God intelligently, and it gives you a few pages, I think five, um, that concisely goes through and describes what we're going to be doing in the journey as we've been making our way Genesis through Revelation and in the book of Job tonight so that we can focus and make sure we understand God's purpose, His theme, and what, what His intended message is to the body of Christ, not just thousands of years ago, but tonight here. What does He want to speak into our hearts? You know, and we come uh, expectant for that. Are we ready for that? Amen? Amen. So, um, we're going to start our introduction, but what I'm going to do, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, I usually take, well, usually an hour to go through an introduction as I'm introducing a book because I go through a lot of the context. However, tonight, um, the Lord just pressed my heart to go through about five minutes of introduction. And jump right into the chapter and allow us to kind of go through and as things pop up I will give context as appropriate but I really just want to get into the Word of God. Um, I know for some of us the book of Job is one of those books that um, we tend to frequent when there's some struggles or difficulties or different things going on in our lives but um, this book is a really beautiful book because As you're going to learn tonight, as we're going to read some of you, maybe this is the first time you're coming to the book of Job. Maybe some of you have read it a hundred times. If I asked each one of you tonight what you thought the purpose or the theme of the book of Job is, I think many of you, if not half you would say, well, it's how to live through or endure suffering. Some of you would probably say that. Some of you might turn around and say, well, the book of Job is about um, a righteous man and the fact that there's a lot going on in the heavenlies, spiritually speaking, that we're not aware of, Uh, speaking to the heavenly hosts, uh, even the fact that Satan can go to and fro, and he still does that today, until the time in Revelation, it says, when he's actually kicked out and removed from heaven that way. And I bet you a lot of people would say that. What if I told you that this book is really about a man other than Jesus Christ, a man that lived as close to perfect as humanly possible on this earth. And throughout his entire life of righteousness, through all of his perfection, through all of his right doing, God calls this out, almost righteous bragging, if I can say it that way, And God's drawing this attention and allows this man Job to go through this, not just for his reputation, because God and Satan are going to have a duel here, so to speak, not just for his reputation. But what if I told you that the whole point of this is that Job actually learned that no matter how good, how perfect he thinks he is or has been living, it's still not enough. Because there's a God, a God of this universe that desires to save him. And it's not till he even gets to the end of himself that he reaches out and calls out and says, I need help. What if I told you that was the actual purpose and theme of the book of Job? That it's what we have been reading through our New Testament. It's what Jesus Christ declared in his gospel. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death but Jesus gives us a gift of new life. Amen. That's the journey we're on through this book. I'm going to take a rake through it different than many of a lot of you probably have sat through this book. But I really believe this is what the Lord is showing me for this fellowship at this time is we're going to go line by line. Um, And I want to show it to you in an encouragement way, an encouraging way, but also in a way that we learn that our perfection, uh, our righteousness, all the things that we think we possess in our own ability will always fall short, will never be good enough. And you know what? I have to tell you tonight, friends, that gives me the greatest satisfaction in a way because it makes me realize that it doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter where I've been. When I come through these doors, we all come in together. Nobody here has arrived. Nobody here has arrived. There's nobody here that can look at anybody and say, I'm better than you. You're better than me. I'm living a better life. You're living a better life. We all need Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we're filthy rags. Amen. God's going to do a work. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we give you, we surrender our lives, Lord. We want Lordship. First, Lord, we desire salvation, of course. We pray, God, you'll speak to our hearts tonight as we go through this word. Lord, uh, many of us have come to this book when we're suffering, when, we, when we're looking for answers, when we don't understand why hardship has come our way. We're looking for help, Lord. We're looking for answers. And Lord Jesus, your right fingerprints are right over every square inch of this page. So, Lord, we we pray, please speak to our hearts. Wreck us tonight. We, in a good way, Lord, we need you. More of you, less of us, Lord. And please, Lord, have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. Lord, we want to do this the right way. We want to learn and get all the meat off the bone, everything you have for us tonight. But to do that, Lord, we know we're going to have to lay down some of our presuppositions, some of our, our own even understanding, God. So help us, Lord, meet us where we're at right now. We need you, Jesus. All God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you've, we've gotten to the book, as I said, we've been going Genesis all the way through Revelation where we've finished the book of Esther. We're actually moving into a new section of the Old Testament. Uh, This section is called the poetic or the section of poetry. Um, It's really comprised of five different areas um, or five different books, excuse me, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. When you think about our book, uh, our Bible, our canon as we understand it—I um, say the Christian canon—is what I mean by that. It's typically broken up into the historical books. What we finished was the historical books, and now we're moving into the po- pofe- uh, poetic. Excuse me, and eventually we'll be moving into the prophetic. If you would go back to original uh, Jewish canon, it was broken up differently. Okay, so you had the Tanakh. And under the Tanakh, you had Torah, which would have been Genesis um, through Deuteronomy. You would have had the Ketuvim, which would have been Job, as we're reading tonight, all the way through the book of Daniel. And some would move that between the Ketuvim and Nevim. But you also have the Nevim, which is also the prophets, which would be Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. For thousands of years, men and women have come and studied this book. And they've come at it different than the historical books when you're coming at it, when you think of a nation or a country or a people group. This book is deeply emotional and spiritual, and it's all about the relationship we have with God. We move again from nations to individuals and their personal relationships, your personal relationships with Jesus Christ. Again. We can think about it this way that decades have passed, some uh, maybe suggest to you some 3,000 or more years. Some say 4,000, depending on how you date this book. And the reality is our circumstances that we face as humans, when you really think about it, it hasn't really changed. It hasn't really changed. People are still dealing with life, death, sickness, health-related things, finances, safety, security, fears, anxiety, joy, hope, opportunity, deliverance, and certainly salvation. Job lived at a time of the patriarchs, so that should immediately bring to many of us the mind of or the thoughts of Abraham. Remember Abraham, he was from Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Many of us uh, may not know where the Chaldees is today, but that would be modern day or what we'd understand as the Mesopotamian area, okay? And he lived around 2000 BC, Abraham. And if that's accurate, and I believe that this book is dated in that time, and I have several reasons for that, we'll look at those together tonight, as I mentioned, as we go through contextually, we'll look, but I'll I'll, pour, I'll point out a couple just to begin with. But as I was Preparing for the study here tonight, it dawned on me, and and I don't know why, for the first time it dawned on me that that other than Genesis chapter 1 through 11, what you and I are reading here is the oldest portion of our Bible. We're reading the oldest portion of our Bible tonight. If you believe that uh, God's Word is inspired and factual and true, and I pray everybody here does, You can look in Job chapter 42, verse 16, and the reason I believe this is dated in the patriarchs, in case you're ever asked or in case you've wondered, is because it says after this, after everything we're going to read over the next few months here, or years, 42 chapters. No, I... I, after this, Job lived 140 years, look at this, chapter 42, verse 16, and saw his children and grandchildren in four generations. So di- Job died old, full of age. That, I, that gives us four additional generations. He had to be somewhere around 180. Some of you have said 200 years. Just thinking back about that, when we look at our scripture, even if we look at some of the things that we read in Genesis, we can think of Terah, who lived 225 years. I, I think of uh, Abraham, How long did he live? 175 years. How about Isaac? Isaac lived 180 years. So just knowing on longevity of life or lifespan, it kind of narrows down. There was only a certain group of people that lived that many years, roughly somewhere between the 150, 175, 200 years. And it's during the patriarchal period, okay? And so that's one of the reasons that I I really believe that everything we're going to read here is based on that. The the second reason, if I had to give you tonight, is because everything that has to do with wealth, as we're going to be reading in in description here, is all tied to livestock. It was their commerce during the patriarchal period. They used livestock to measure one's wealth. Um, Job was one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man alive on the earth in the 2000 BC, because that's when the Patriarch period was, it'd be about 2000 BC or so when this would have been dated. Okay. So with that, I'd like to turn our attention to chapter one, verse one. And then like I said, we'll we'll continue to bring out some additional historical context and uh, context to the book, but I'd like to get us right into the word of God. Chapter one, verse one there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. The first thing that we see here, this man, he says, in the land of Uz, we have no idea where this is. Even through excavation and um, archaeology and everything else that many scholars have been—we're not sure. Could it be near the Mesopotamian era? Could it be in that central? It's—it's it's possible. We just don't know. We just don't know where Uz is. But we—we we find that this is a real man by the name of Job. I, I say that because there are those that try to take Scripture and say, "Oh, this is a a nice story here tonight. You're going to hear." Or, or this is an example of what could have happened to a man. And I think it's very clear that this man is real, and I believe that because the Bible tells me so. If you hold your finger here, turn to Ezekiel chapter 14, please. And that would be to your right. Ezekiel chapter 14, and it's kind of nice and easy to memorize because it's verse 14 as well. Chapter 14, verse 14. We read about Ezekiel, the prophet. He goes back and he quotes, and he lists a man by the name of Job. Look at verse 14 with me. Even if these, or even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, we know Noah was real. Nobody questions that. We know Daniel was a prophet. Nobody questions if Daniel was a real man. And here we see Job. And there's not one of us that should question if he was a real man. And it says, we're in it, and they would deliver only themselves for the righteousness, says the Lord. Right? But there's more. Turn in your Bible to James chapter 5, verse 11, please. If you you get to Hebrews, keep going. One more book over. James chapter 5, verse 11, please. James, follower of Christ, indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is yet or is very compassionate and merciful. So once again, we see multiple places where he is clearly a real man. And the next thing we learn about that man, you can turn back chapter one, verse one of Job, is this man was blameless. Now let's talk about the Hebrew for a minute. This word in the Hebrew, when I think of blameless today, or it's written in the New Testament, the word blames, actually it's a little bit of a different meaning. Typically we think one without blame, right? Or one that has not done something wrong. In the Hebrew, it actually means something a little bit different. It means a man that is total or a man that is complete, It's trying to say that Job is not only a man, not only did he lack nothing, but he is complete and he is whole. That's what the Hebrew is trying to tell us about Job. We also read, and he's an upright. That again, in the Hebrew, when we think of upright, uh, you know, today we would say he's an upright. He's He's a good man that way. What he's trying to tell us in the Hebrew, what the original meaning, if you looked in a Hebrew lexicon, it means that he is one that is straight. There is no bend. There is no manipulation, no bend, nothing like that. This is a man that is perfectly straight. You can't find even a little vacillation, a little variation in his character. He is, you could set a corner upon him as a cornerstone. You could set a foundation upon that straightness. That's who he is. And he says, and one who feared God. So clearly he has a relationship with God. He's a believer, okay? And certainly this doesn't mean, as we're going to see here, and shunned evil. I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that this man is without sin, Nowhere is it implied here that because he is whole, we think of blameless, that would mean one without blame. Like I said, that's not what it means in the Hebrew. It would, you would think one without sin. That's not what it's saying about Job. He's whole. He's straight. He has integrity, but it never says he's without sin. It says he fears God. And all that applies talking about reverence and his relationship with God. And he shunned evil. What's that mean? It's what we would use, kind of like what we think of repentance or metanoia in the Greek. I know I'm in the Hebrew, but I'm trying to give you an example. The best one I can think of is in the Greek. It means to turn away. That's what this means when it says shunning evil. It means literally turning away from evil, not flirting with it, not even fleeing from it, simply turning from it so that no longer is it even near him or a part of him. Has nothing to do with him. God's spending a lot of time to let us understand the character of this man. He seems like almost a perfect guy, doesn't he? A Perfect guy that needs Jesus. And we read seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So we talked about the number seven before here, you know, in the Hebrew, what's that number mean? Completeness. So we're seeing, especially in the male, that would be important in the Hebrew because uh, a child, the male, the lineage, passing through the male line, important. Seven, this is a man that God is saying is complete. He's received all he needs that would be passed on to future generations. Right? It also says, and three daughters were born to him. Again, 10 children. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Let's just think about that. Some of you are going, I don't know what the worth of a sheep is, right? Like how do we, you know, what do you trade in sheep? What's that mean to me? The average wealthy person in that day at least what we can understand biblically, because you can look up Abraham, you can look at other character, character references in the Bible, and you can look up extra biblical references. The average really wealthy, like what we would say today are billionaires, or maybe even somebody's a trillionaire, right, would be 3,000. 3,000 sheep. He has 7,000. He has double what would have been the wealth or what we would have thought of as extreme wealth in that day. Three thousand camels. What? What are camels? How would you like to have three thousand vehicles? That's what we're reading. That's what he had. Three thousand vehicles. Some of you are like, I don't want the insurance with that, right? Or to have to clean those things, right? To me, the more you have, the more you got to clean, the more you got to take care of, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, you buy houses. We have to buy bigger houses because we put more stuff in the houses, and then you got to clean more of the stuff. It's like. Yeah. A pillow, a blanket, 500 yoke of oxen. Okay. You guys know I like John Deere's and tractors, right? You know, I'm a tractor guy. 500 yoke. All right. This describes the agriculture. This man is working in the furloughs and the farming. He had some farming enterprise at this point. 5,000 or 500, I meant to say, yoke of oxen. That means he's got a lot of land he's working. Because in other words, you wouldn't have these oxen just to hang around. You have to feed them. So therefore, they're there to do work. So he's working the land. 500 female donkeys. A little bit more of a nicer travel kind of way to ride on a donkey. Instead of a camel that way. Or And a very large household. We're going to read about the servants he had, So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. It, it makes it very clear. He had a very extreme wealth. And his sons would go in and feast in their houses. His sons are apparently adults, each on his appointed day. Now, we want to be clear here. There's nothing that says how often he does this. Is this something like on, you know, holidays or, or feast days or days that they would gather? Because remember... We've read nothing so far, and it's important when we come to these appointed days. Later on, after the patriarchal period, what do we learn about? We learn about the Mosaic Law, and all of a sudden we have feast days that become introduced for the Jewish people, right? That's another reason I believe this is written during the patriarchal time, because there's nothing that mentions anything about Moses, the Mosaic Law, or anything to do with feast days, ceremonial practices, or any of that. Again, another proof point that this is around 2,000, probably your oldest portion of Bible other than Genesis 1 through 11. Well, as we keep reading, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Clearly, they're a close, loving family. This is what we see. All the 10 kids get together. You know, I enjoy our family. We're a very close family, right? Love you. We're a very close family here. I love that when people get to come together, we eat, we sup together. It's very nice. Job and his family looks looks. It's biblical here. A very closeness, closeness. The kids get together. Even and in Job, we're going to read he intercedes for them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and on, ber- offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So what's he doing? He's sacrificing for his home. He's being the pastor's home. This would be what? Sin, if this was during the Mosaic law, or the time of the Mosaic, because only the who were supposed to do that? The priests. And as a matter of fact, we saw kings that came in and tried to do such things, and they had to pay a very heavy price for that. So again, all the evidence is there. We know this is the patriarchal period. We know this is written in about 2000, but, but clearly we also learned something about Job. He loved his children. He was involved in their lives. He was invested in them. It wasn't like you're out, good, see you, hope I don't see you, or when I see you, I see you. No, he was involved in them. He he was even praying for them continually. He never stopped praying for them. They would go out and even if he wasn't, they would go out and gather together. And what would he do? He would have prayer offerings. He would intercede, intercessory prayers, we would call it today. And he offers burnt offerings. And it says, for Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. He's just covering the bases. Thus Job did regularly. And probably at the end of the feast days, he would do this. And, I mean, it's a beautiful picture of what God wants us to be like. A man that's upright, guys. Uh, A man that's complete and whole, straight, right? A man that turns and runs, well, not runs, but actually just turns entirely from evil. A man that, no matter how much wealth he's blessed with, he he still goes to the Lord and gives thanksgiving and he prays and he talks to God. And, and not only that, but he, he also turns around and he prays for his kids, prays for their future and what's going on with them. I mean, this guy looks like the package, right? He looks like the package, the real deal here. Well, let's read in verse 6 what's going to happen here. This is going to open our eyes to some things that are happening around us all the time. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and that term here is used, it's used as a phrase for angels in your Old Testament. Uh, If you want to just see that, hold your finger here and turn, uh, turn to Genesis chapter six. So you don't take my word for it. We're talking about angelic hosts here. It's not like we're, because it's sons of God, it makes it sound like who, you know, Jesus uses that, used that title, didn't he? The son of God. But we're talking about angels here. If you look in uh, chapter six, some of you are very familiar with this chapter. um, the wickedness on the earth and what had happened, and then certainly we're introduced to Noah in chapter six. But but look at chapter six. It says, "Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born in them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and took wives for themselves whom they chose. And we know what this is going to eventually introduce is something called what the Nephilim, right? The Nephilim." And that was Satan's attempt to intermarry with spiritual beings and humans so that he created basically an off-breed of people uh, so that the seed couldn't come through that pure line. Because Jesus would come through a pure line that way, line of Judah actually, as we'll learn. But Satan was trying to compromise or manipulate that so that Messiah Jesus couldn't come through the, 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 that line. And that, that's the attempt. Also look in, you can hold your finger here. Um, well, just, just for time, you can, you can look in, uh, I think it's Luke also you can look in, but, but for time's sake, we're going we're gonna to keep going here. And he came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So this is interesting. How many of you knew that Satan still goes to and fro? I mean, we read it in the book of Job, but I think a lot of us today think Satan is isn't he like in hell somewhere tormenting people, right? Isn't that what he's supposed to be doing down there? And and you know, people come down and he's got the pitchfork and you kind of walk around and you go, boo boo when he gets you, you know, kind of thing. I'm not trying to make fun of it, but just how many of us have you know you uh, maybe before we were saved we watched things we shouldn't have. You hear those kind of nonsense, but we know from the Bible that he still has access. Hold your finger, turn to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation in your Bible. And I know some of you, you probably know this, but it's good to study these things. It's a good reminder for us uh, where these things are. And and if we haven't, it's a good opportunity for us to learn. Look at chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice and saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Friends, we're not in this time period. We're not in the in the great tribulation where we know that even in the first beginning of the great tribulation, there's going to be at least 2 billion people that will die. Well, 1.8 or so based on current population. So clearly we know he can still go to and fro. One day he will be cast down and he will be cast out. But what is he doing up there? What does it say he's doing? It says he's the accuser of our brethren. Who accused them before God at night and has been cast down? Satan has been studying, he's not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere at once, but he has been studying humans for 5,000 plus years. The principalities and powers, a third of the angels that fell with him, have been studying humans for 5,000 years, constantly, consistently looking for ways to attack, to accuse, to go to God the Father. See? because what is the accusation that Satan's going to make here against God? It's heartbreaking when you you think about it. What he's going to basically say after God says, have you seen my servant Job? Satan's going to come back, and, and I'm sorry if I'm ruining it for you a little bit. We're going to get there in a moment. Satan's going to come back, and he's going to say, it's only because you've blessed him or shown him favor. You know what Satan's really saying to God? The God of the universe, the very God that created him. Because remember, angels are immortal beings. God is an eternal being. He looks to God as he's sitting in the throne room of God, like somebody walking in your house, up in the throne room of God, and he looks at him and he goes, no one would ever love you. No one could ever love you, God. Unless you did something for them. That's the only reason anybody ever loves you, God. It's because you do something for them. Can you imagine God, our Lord, hearing that from a created being that He created, who was supposed to be the most beautiful, as we read in Ezekiel 28, with the jewels and the precious stones, who was a worship leader to bring worship and glory to God? He was created for that purpose. And for that per- that being that angel fallen angel turn and look and say no one could ever love you. I can't even imagine the hurt that our God would have felt at that moment. I mean that's real pain. I mean just think about how we feel sometimes. You know when our kids are growing up and they're little and they come to us, mommy, daddy, I hate you. I don't like you. You won't let me have a piece of cake. And we're like, no, we're doing the right thing, right? But it cuts, doesn't it? And it hurts. It cuts us deep. Because we have hearts. Even though we know they don't really mean it. They get older and say it's a lot different then, right? But, but at least when they're little, we can say we know they don't mean it. No, I pray that never happens. I pray that never happens. But just think about how you feel. Can you imagine being God, the author of all creation? Uh, it's more than I can bear and take. Let the video run in your mind for a moment. Live the scriptures. Place yourself in the word of God here. That's really what's going to happen. So it says that they come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came, because he still has access among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Well, he's not omnipresent, is he? He's not, a, it's, it's not, where are you all at the same time? Only God's part of the omnis, right? You know, when I say omnis, I mean, I'm covering all three. I'm, you know, all powerful, can be everywhere, all knowing. Only God's the omnis, the eternal God, not, not an angel, not a fallen angel. Where, where'd you come from? Where, where, where were you? What was he doing again? We just read in Revelation, he's the great accuser of the brethren. He's been walking around the earth, trying to figure out who he can attack, who he can stumble as a roaring lion, seeking what? Whom he can destroy, destroy, devours. the scriptures teach it, but destroy. Just think about Jesus for a minute. Look at 1 John, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. We read about Jesus Christ, I'm so thankful for the Lord, He's kept all this for us. We can read these things as encouragement when we feel like, man, what is going on in the spiritual realm? What is going on? 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Did you know that? You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. Underline that, circle that, claim that in the name of Jesus Christ. The devil's really good, and so are the principalities of our, are just absolutely condemning us, isn't he? He can make us feel this big to the point where we can't stop crying, can't get out of bed, don't even know why we want to live. All those kind of things we can say. And then we read a passage like that in 1 John where, let the video play, Satan's coming up there. Have you seen my servant Matt? He's an idiot. He's this, he's that, but he loves me. No, God doesn't say that, does he? No, that's what I would say. Do you know what God says? Have you seen my my servant Matt? I'm madly in love with him and he's madly in love with me. I may not get blameless. I may not get upright. I may not, but he's madly in love with me and I'm madly in love with him. And you know what? That's more than I could ever want. That's more than I could ever want in my life. And Satan turns around and goes, but you know what? I've seen him or this, he's doing this. You look at his attitude when he's tired or, or when he's, you know, this or hey, when he walks in the house and oh boy, what's going to happen? Or he walks in the church and oh, here he comes again. What, what mood is he in today? I hope you don't really do that, by the way. But you get my, why are you laughing? You especially. Pastor Bill. I'm not even going to look at anybody else it's like you got like inside never praise the Lord never that didn't take long I'm back to this again no (laughs) but you know what the minute he starts doing that in heaven Jesus Christ stands up and he says he's mine there's the advocate And he says it's because of his righteousness. He doesn't go back and go, well, you know, he tried real hard or this or that, and none of that comes into the equation. It's Satan, be gone. I am Jesus, the lamb of God that has taken away the sins of the world. And in the name by my father's authority, be gone. You have nothing on my son. He's been washed by the blood of the lamb. And that's that. And it's done. Closed case. Advocate didn't even need to present his reason. Jesus is holy and righteous. Everything else is covered. Friends, he does that for each and every one of you. If you're a born again believer, he's doing that for you right now. Because Satan doesn't stop. The the evil and the principalities and powers don't stop. Well, as we continue to read here, they, they, they came and among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, right? You can look at Ephesians 5 and 12. It talks about, you know, the heavenly places, walking back and forth on it. What's he doing? He's people watching. <laughs> This is an important detail because this is what he does. This is what the demons do, the principalities in power. They're watching. They're watching. Did you even know that's happening? C.S. Lewis Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. I remember I read that when I was in New York City. 25 30 years ago whatever it was 25 years ago I remember reading that book I was on the Metro North and he taught, you know it's it's fiction but it's based on truth of spiritual warfare Aaron. and the fact that these things are happening around you and I remember sitting on that train I was heading out of New York City back to a Westchester County and I remember sitting on the train and after reading that moment and I looked in scripture I was like oh that is and then I remember <laughs> <laughs> Which one are you? <laughs> right? right? Really? And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant? Notice what he calls him, my servant. I love that. My servant Job. There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. A man that's whole and complete, a man that's straight. One who fears God and shuns evil. So by the way, don't pray against that. Many of us are like, oh, no, we do not want God bringing us up to Satan like that, right? (laughs) Like, don't pray against that. If the Lord wants to do that, praise the Lord. Don't pray against that because you're worried about how hard it's going to get or how difficult it's going to get or the suffering and the affliction and persecution you're going to face. So Satan, here comes the accusation, answered the Lord and said, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side. So we learned something. We learned that Satan saying, hey, you've taken your servant Job and you've basically insulated him. You've protected him and put hedge around him, a hedge that Satan himself can't get through, even though he's been people watching for all that time. And he's wandering around Job, and he's wandering like that line, seeking who he can devour, and he's walking around, but he can't get to him. Not unless the Lord allows it. That teaches us something very important. Satan, the principalities and powers in the demonic realm, cannot get to you unless God allows it. And so, he, he's, but he's trying. He's been watching. Otherwise, how would Satan have known there was a hedge around Job if he hadn't already walked around him to try to figure out how he could what? Attack him. That's how I know. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And, and unfortunately, there's always got to be a but. But now stretch out your hand and... Touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. You see what what he's doing? He's questioning Job's motive. And it's all because you've shown him favor and protection. You remove your hedge from him and God, you will find out just how fickle he is. He couldn't possibly love you, God, for you being God. It's only because you gave him stuff and put protection around him. You remove that. He won't love you, God. He'll curse you. He'll curse you right to your face. If you were God, would you have tolerated that? And the Lord said to Satan, that's why I know that God is allowing this to happen also for Job. Because Job's going to learn something from this. He's going to learn his need for God. His need, even though he's going to question all these things as we're going to read it, he's even going to put God on trial to some extent. But in the end, Job is going to learn through his suffering, through everything being removed, to the being to the point this po- close to death, just how much God held him in his hand and just how much he did need the Lord and always needs the Lord. How much salvation matters. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. So there it is. You can't do it without it. Only do not lay a hand on his person. What is God saying? You and me are going to dance. He says, you want to do this? He says, fine. All of heaven and all the heavenly hosts right now, they're all watching it. The third of the fallen angels, they're watching it. All of the Two-thirds of the angels in heaven, they're watching it. God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, everybody is watching this. And right now, you're putting my reputation and your reputation on trial, Satan and God. They're not equal, but you want to see this is, this is what it is. This is what's going to happen here. And he's putting it out like this, and he's going to say, well, let's see who's right. You say that Job won't love me and can't love me if I don't bless him, if I don't give him all these things. Let's see who's really right here. Does Job really love me, God, for me? Or is it really because what you're saying is accurate and it's just because I'm giving him stuff? Is it possible for you to truly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You know, it's interesting. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Hold your finger here. I know we're over time. First Corinthians 10, 13. Therefore, let him... I'm going to read verse 12. Uh, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Do you, you catch that? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, we'll also make a way out of an escape that you may be able to bear it. What God is telling us here is it's not that we're not going to blow it, but when we start to realize we're blowing it, God is telling us very clearly that he's providing a way out. We can stop right where we are at that moment and repent, metanoia, turn, and be reconciled to God. You ever have a problem in a marriage? You ever have a problem in a relationship? You ever have a problem with a friend? Maybe in college or a friend you know for a long time? If you're not surrendered to Christ, forgiveness will seem impossible. But when you're son or daughter of the king, it's amazing how that check of the spirit comes in and you recognize, what am I doing? What am I doing? and immediately God calls us to repentance, to reconciliation. There is no reason God doesn't want reconciliation. If you're no longer hearing that call, you're no longer hearing that anthem in your heart, no matter what's going on, you don't do it because of the other person deserving it. You do it because God deserves it, and He's glorified through it. But when you stop hearing that, or you actually think you know better, oh, That is dangerous ground. You are beginning to sear the Holy Spirit. You are beginning to sear the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's the only way you can keep going on that way. Otherwise you can't. You know what I'm talking about. There's been Christians more than a day and you're blowing it and you're in the wrong place. What am I doing? I can't believe I'm doing this. What did I say? What did I do? How did I get here? You recognize it. I like to say we have low hedges, some of us. It doesn't take a whole lot. Boom. Okay, Lord, forgive me. You get down on your knees, you pray, and God restores you and makes you whole. But there's some people, man alive, that hedge is like 20 feet tall. God's allowed it in some ways. But then when God says, no, Satan, it's time for buffeting. And that hedge goes away. It's all because of love. But that correction's going to come And it's gonna come swiftly. And sometimes we don't people don't recognize the searing of the Spirit of God. Ephesians five, right? Is there's Ephesians four or (coughs) five. Ephesians four. Verse 25: "Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his name, for if we are members of one another, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That wasn't a suggestion nor give place to the devil. Again, not a suggestion. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him who working with his hands um, what is good, that he may have something to give to the poor need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for education, that you may impart grace to the ears. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, again, not a suggestion. You are a born-again believer. I'm a born-again believer. We're commanded to do this. He didn't ask our opinion. It's not a suggestion. It's what a disciple of Christ does. And again, it's not because the other person deserves it. It's because God does. And he's Lord. This is a lordship issue. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. That was Haman's problem. Remember malice? We read about that. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even, here it is, underline it, even as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, oh. There's not a single soul in this room that ever has, no matter what has been done to us or what we've done to others not have the opportunity to come to God and ask for forgiveness and receive peace and rest for our souls. You can turn back to Job and it says he went out from his presence and there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine and their oldest brother in the house and a messenger came to Job and said, hey, the oxen were plowing and the the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians, that's, these are nomadic people, later on Sheba, they'll become part of the Canaanites. But at this point, remember, we're in the, uh, we're in the patriarchal time, so they haven't formed those nations yet. That's who the Sabians are. They, they will become part of that. Raided them. Um, they're nomadic at this time. And took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Have you ever experienced this where it's like, oh man, I don't think it can get any worse. While, what? While he was still speaking, another also came in and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Maybe, maybe that's lightning, natural current, na- um, natural disaster. We're not sure. And burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. What? Have ever, we ever heard that? Well, man, it's like one bad thing. What do we say? After another. We know this. It's right here. This is, but, but I mean, this is on steroids. I don't think many of us have gone through something like this. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans, again, nomadic people, formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes. And killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I have alone escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came. And I, all this is a deep hurt and maybe now the deepest your sons and your daughters reading and drinking wine, the very people that he interceded for regularly, did he not do what was right? Did he not intercede for his kids? He did everything right, and yet it still happened. I struggle with that sometimes. You can pray for me with that. Because my intellect and my logic, Lord, I'm I'm doing these things. Why is the outcome coming out different? And God's word never fails me when I come to the book of Job. I look at these things and it reminds me why. They're drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house. Maybe it's a tornado, maybe it's a hurricane. It says, and it fell on the young people and they are dead and alone I escaped to tell you. Just think about that for a minute. Do you you see why in John 10, 10, do you see why the devil is a destroyer? He didn't hold back, did he? He didn't didn't do any of this in measure, did he? He's natural disasters. I mean, he apparently can do that. You know, even his name, Amadon, in the Hebrew, it means destroyer. Apollyon in the Greek, it means destroyer. And that's exactly what he wants to do. He didn't need to be motivated to do it. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Then Job arose and tore his robe. He's mourning. He shaved his head. Head and hair is a sign of prominence, the gray hairs. And he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Did you catch that? My Bible doesn't say, and it fell to the ground and he cursed God and died. Who was right? God was right. God was right. That's what he did. He worshiped. And he said, because he had a relationship with God, his relationship's intact. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord give gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This can only happen when a believer is completely submitted to God and recognizes everything belongs to him. This can only happen. If if that's not you tonight, if there's still something you're holding on to, if there's still something in your life, whether it's material, whether there's something uh, emotional, physical, whether there's something you're holding on that brings enmity to God, that distances your relationship to God, a grudge, uh, uh, whatever it is. Lay it down. You don't have right relationship with God. If your horizontal is not right, your vertical can never be. Lay it down. God is pleading with us. We're seeing this. Even a man who didn't deserve any of these things, can we all agree? This man deserved none of this. And yet all he can do because he's in right relationship with God is worship. He can worship. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with the wrong. Hmm. Musicians can come forward. If you're, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me? We're going to pray. I really believe with all my heart, God wants to do an amazing work. He wants to do an amazing work in this fellowship. He wants to heal hearts. He wants reconciliation. He wants people to come to salvation. He wants people to understand that who are suffering right now, who are going through you know, sicknesses, just received a call from a doc, just lost a job, all of the things that come at us. God is so good. He wants us to understand that those things don't necessarily mean punishment nor judgment. Sometimes they can be for our own wrongdoing, right? For our own stupidity. I think we can all agree we need to be buffeted by Satan at times. But this was because he was lifted up of a man or a woman, you all, of righteousness, Our lives belong to him. If we don't process that and understand it, all of the calamities, good, bad, indifferent, all of the things that happen in our lives, we are never going to recognize the purpose. And we may never understand, as Job, until the very end, because he goes through how many chapters, until God finally speaks to him this whole time, God is silent as he's putting God on trial, as we often do. Lord, what did I do? Have I not done this for you? Did I not do this? And the hedge has been lowered. And many times it's to bring a witness. Have you seen my servant? There's no one else like him or her. Let's be careful. As, we, as we're going to read in this book, let's be careful our counsel we give to others. L- let's be careful about the things that we say and how we think and how we treat other people, how we react to them. I often think, The greatest harm I do in disappointment to God is just when I simply misrepresent Him. When I just simply misrepresent Him. I call myself a Christian and I don't respond like Christ. What am I doing? Father, Lord, I, I know you will speak to the hearts of your people here tonight. Lord, I know you speak into my heart, Lord. I know this is for me just as much as it is for anybody here. God, I know you desire to be worshipped and glorified, and you deserve it all, Lord. You deserve to be magnified. Lord, you've created the heavens and the earth. You've given us life. You've provided for us. We've, We've had meals today. We're clothed. Thank you, God, for that. Lord, we have everything at our hands. We are such a rich people. And Lord, yes, sometimes even in storms, Lord, may we always be able to worship you in spite of our circumstances. Because God, you are so good and that never ever changes. Lord, our circumstances change, you don't. So Father, I pray, have your way in us tonight. If there are somebody here that doesn't know you, let tonight be the day, the night of salvation. May they call out to you and ask Jesus for you to come into their heart. Lord, if there's somebody that's in an enmity or or, or in not right relationship with a friend, uh, anyone, Lord, let there be reconciliation tonight. Lord, you commanded it. Don't let the sun go down on the anger, Lord. You, You command it, Lord. All these things are lordship issues. Let us submit to the one true God. Jesus, we ask, do that work in us, Lord. Sometimes we can't. We feel like we can't because of our unbelief or our lack of faith or, or, or our strength, but you can, God. So, Lord, we just submit to you. We lay down our lives to you, and we ask you to have every part and aspect of us wash us and cleanse us anew, renew our minds, baptize us anew with the Spirit, Lord, your Spirit, the Spirit of God. And Lord, we pray that your countenance would be upon us and that we would respond to every soul before us with your tenderness, your mercy, and your meekness. Lord, strengthen us to do that, that we may be, Lord, the children of God. We pray and we ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen.